Well, hello, Christ Chapel, and hello to all of you joining us who are streaming. Hello to uh, certainly Converge and the West Campus, Hive and South Campus. South Campus had a great time worshiping with you uh, last Sunday when they opened up uh, their brand new facility. Thank you for your generosity. Uh, it, that place was rocking. I'm surprised it's still standing. Uh, the place was gonna explode. It was so much fun uh, to worship with all of you. And uh, today, though, is going to be a super Sunday. And I know it's gonna be super for so many reasons, but uh, if I may, let me speak to the gentleman here very quickly. Uh, I know you're thinking about what's happening that's super this evening. Don't be super surprised that tomorrow is February 14th. (laughs) Some of you are like, oh yeah. Yeah, so uh, don't, don't forget that um, you certainly need to treat that Valentine uh, well. But I wanna take everyone uh, back. I know some of you are in school, but if you're not in school now, I wanna take you back to the time when you were in school and ask you a question. Was there ever a time or a class that you had where the professor or the teacher graded on the curve? Did you ever have one of those classes? You know, where basically what the uh, teacher did was they lowered the standard because of how awful everyone did on the assignment or the test. Everyone, you know, got a a D or or an an F maybe. Everybody failed and, and the teacher lowered the standard and then somehow everybody magically got an A, B, or C. I mean, it's pretty great if you had a teacher or professor who did that. As you can imagine, being a church recreation major, I didn't have many classes where they graded on the curve, nor was it necessary uh, that, that they did so. But I did have one class at Baylor where they graded on the curve, and it was the physics class, Packard Physics, which was, he was a, a legend at Baylor. If you went there, you probably had him. But uh, that was the one class where they graded on the curve. And you would know that if I told you the grade that I got in that class, which was a B. Now, there's no way a church recreation major is getting a B in physics without somebody grading on the curve. You know, it's great to be graded on the curve. It's great to have that that artificial bump, especially if you don't have the chops like me to, to get a good grade in physics, or if you just, you know, didn't have time to study or you just simply didn't do well on the test. But what exists in academics periodically is non-existent in Christianity. Here's what I mean by that. God does not grade on the curve. He never has and he never will. Now that's a problem for those of us who know we're not going to meet his standard. So how do we relate to a God who does not grade us on the curve? And that's what we're gonna talk about today. So if you will, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five, we're gonna be in verses 17 to 20. We're gonna continue in our series, Upside Down, and specifically marching through the gospel of Matthew. But this section is based on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is presenting this uh, contrary kingdom to the world. 
His kingdom operates completely differently than the kingdoms of this world. It's upside down. And we saw the way that he introduced this was with the be attitudes, these attitudes that his citizens possess that are different than the attitudes of the world. And in week one, we compared and contrasted that. And then last week, we talked about how his citizens, he's equipping them, changing their identity so that they will be agents of change. They will be salt in the world. They will be light in the darkness. But what he needs to do next is tell them that the category changers that he wants them to be is not going about it the way that the world goes about it. It's going to be different. And what Jesus is going to say in these verses specifically is that he's not asking us to meet the standard because he's going to meet the standard and change us instead. And so I want you to just follow along with me because I want to read this section as a whole and then we'll go back and and break it down kind of word by word here. But just as a section beginning in verse 17, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we'll stop right there. May God bless the reading of his word and may our hearts be open to hear from him. And so what Jesus is doing, as I said in this section, is he's talking about a different standard in which the kingdom of God operates. It's not a standard that is only visual. And he's gonna make a comparison here with the Pharisees. And I'll explain who the Pharisees are in a moment. But what he's going to say is living out uh, the standard of the kingdom of heaven is not just living by the letter of the law, but it's also living out the spirit of the law as well. But in order to explain this, I feel like we need to start with just a basic understanding of the law. So very quickly, I'm going to walk you through Genesis 1-1, and by the end of the sermon, we're going to be at the end of Romans 7, okay? You should be out in time for the second half of the Super Bowl. Don't worry. Okay, but let's start here. Let's build a base first. Laws are standardized commands of how to rightly relate to others. Let's just just, uh, come up with a common uh, uh, definition or agreement. We can all agree that laws are standardized commands of how to rightly relate to others. I'm I'm just talking about laws in general. Laws in general are these standards, these, these societal standards that set Uh, expectations, or they set boundaries on how we as individuals are supposed to act, but also how we're supposed to relate to other people. We're not supposed to do this to them. We're supposed to treat them like this, X, Y, and Z. That's what laws are. If, If our world didn't have laws today, you can imagine how chaotic things would be. It would just, I mean, just think about even, even driving to church, if there, if there wasn't a standard that you drive on the right side of the road, that would be chaotic. 
That it's these standardized expectations or boundaries of how to relate to one another. It's hard for us to imagine a world without laws, but there was actually a world without laws a long time ago. You see, back in Genesis, Genesis gave us a picture of life without laws before sin ruined our relationships. In Genesis, God created the world. He created everything we see. He created people, human beings, and he called everything Good. Everything was good. Everything was right. Everything was exactly the way that it was supposed to be. And Adam and Eve are relating to one another perfectly. They're relating to God perfectly. And then sin enters the picture. Now, who brought sin into the world? They did. They sinned. They're the first ones to sin. They sin and they bring it into the picture. And now all of a sudden they hide from God and they hide from one another. They're at odds with one another. So all of a sudden they are not rightly related to God or to one another. And guess what happens right after that? It takes less than a chapter and we're already at the point of murder. Remember Genesis chapter four, you have Cain and Abel. Murder's already entered the picture. Sin had just entered the picture. And we're already to that extreme. And so because sin enters the world and now we're wrongly related to one another and to God, God gives us the law. God gave laws to his people to help them rightly relate to him and to one another. And this specifically is given to God's people back in the Old Testament. So this would be the Israelites uh, then. And he gives it to them in the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Some people call that the Pentateuch. Some people call that the the Torah. But just the five books of the Bible is where his law is contained. These were rules. These were standards. These were regulations of how God wanted his people to be rightly related to him and to one another. Here are the standards, guys. This is what we're supposed, supposed to do. Now, the law back in those first five books, if you kind of categorize them, there are three main categories. First were ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws were how we related to God. Here's how you should approach a holy God. Here, Here are the festivals that you should hold that would remind you of who God is and what he's done for you. Then there was the civil law. Civil law was how you relate to civilization, to one another, it, it, it dealt with even, uh, some dealt with justice, some even uh, how you pay people back, uh, how you borrow, all of, all of those things, how you relate to others. And then the third was just the moral law, just, just morality. This is how you should conduct yourself, more about character. Now, certainly uh, there's overlap in some of these, but when you think about the moral law, think of the Ten Commandments. This is how, this is what I should and should not do. Now, when you take all of those and you put them all together, guess how many laws there are? 613. 613 laws. There's 365 laws that are negative. Don't do this. Then there are 248 laws that are positive. Do this. Now, you can imagine 613 laws to always remember, don't do this and do this is a lot to just keep in the forefront of your brain, much less obey. But there's a group that is trying to do so when we get to the New Testament. And that group was called the Pharisees. 
You see, the Pharisees were trying to live out God's law perfectly, which only led to their divisive pride. The Pharisees, and we're gonna be studying a lot about the Pharisees as we go throughout the Gospel of Matthew, but the Pharisees were a small sect of the Israelites that were the not only keepers of the law, but the interpreters of the law. They were trying to keep all 613 laws to the best of their ability, but the only way that they could do that was to find some loopholes, to relax it a little bit. To, they, and then they could because they were interpreters of it. They were interpreting it themselves. And whatever they did, they could interpret it and go, I'm right in that. And everybody else said, well, they must be right. They're the experts. I mean, the Pharisees back then, they would have been looked at as we look at modern day Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. We would have gone, those are the most holy people. And if, if they say that's okay, then I guess that's okay. But that's how they were interpreting the law and trying to live it out. Problem is the way that they were doing it was dividing them because of their own pride. See, the Pharisees were very smug in their own self-righteousness. They looked down on other people who couldn't uphold the law to the extent that they did, who didn't remember all the 613 uh, commands. So they were divided from one another. Then they're obviously divided from God because God gave us laws to rightly relate to whom? To him and to one another. So this pride that they had because they are so self-righteous following the law was actually the opposite of the law's intent. He wanted them to follow the law so that they would be rightly related to him and to one another. So the Pharisees, although looked at and seen as experts, were getting it all wrong. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And Jesus came to demonstrate how to live out God's law perfectly. Thank you for hanging with me for that kind of foundation of what is going on in the Old Testament. Because Jesus comes on the scene and now he's gonna demonstrate, here's what it means to live out God's law perfectly. See, I'm Jesus, not I, Jesus is going to live out the, the spirit of the law as well as the letter of the law. And he's gonna demonstrate that. Where the law was given in writing, Jesus is gonna live it out in flesh. He's gonna show them what it looks like. Look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus is preaching this radical upside down kingdom and it would have been very easy to be misunderstood that he's preaching something different than what God had laid out in the Old Testament. But he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to, to, to fill them up, to keep them completely is what he's saying here. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. See, what Jesus wanted these folks to understand that are sitting there on the, the mount, or as we saw, the hill of Beatitudes, he's telling them that my life is going to be congruent with the Old Testament. Jesus lived a life congruent with God's Old Testament. He was saying, what God told you then is still true today. And I am going to show you, I'm gonna demonstrate that it's still true today. It doesn't though look like the Pharisees. It doesn't look like the way that they have been living. It actually looks different. 
And actually, I am going to fill it up. I am going to do everything the Old Testament says. And he says, heaven and earth will not pass away before everything is fulfilled. What he's essentially saying is the created order before the created order is over, before Revelation 22 hits the end, everything will be fulfilled. And the way that he says that is he talks about not one iota or not one dot will pass away. And I just, I just wanna show you uh, what, that, what that looks like. Um, because what he would have been saying is it, these images are in, in what he's saying. So an iota, uh, he might have been referencing the smallest Hebrew letter, which is yod. So that is the smallest Hebrew letter. I know it's super huge on the screen, but I promise you it's tiny in the text. And then he says, not one dot. What, I, what I've tried to picture for you here is those two Hebrew letters at the top, sin and shin, those, those are the names of the letters. It, sin does not mean what we mean by sin. Um, sin is the name of that letter. So sin and shin, where you put that dot makes the world a difference. It makes a ton of difference. Almost like our equivalent, if you go down to the bottom corner, the difference between our O and Q. It's like that tiny little dash. I mean, if, if you don't put that tiny little dash, you know, my name is Cody McEwen, you know, which is so much better than McQueen. Uh, but that's what he's saying. It's these tiny differences. What Jesus is saying is, I came to fulfill even the tiniest details. The iotas, the yodes, the dots, everything will be fulfilled. Not one of those things will be ignored or overlooked. All will be fulfilled before heaven and earth pass away. You see, Jesus kept every one of God's laws perfectly, therefore fulfilling the law. And when I say perfectly, what you need to understand, and we'll get to it here in just a second, is Jesus fulfilled it perfectly internally and externally. That means all 613 commands, 365 negative, 248 positive. Every one of them completely, he did it exactly right. All the time, from birth to crucifixion. Everything perfect and right. Not only did he fulfill the law, he says that he fulfilled the prophets. Remember, there are prophecies, and we talked about that in our first series. All these prophecies that pointed to the Messiah, that pointed to Jesus's arrival, he fulfilled all of those. Depending on how you uh, interpret uh, prophecies, there could have been hundreds of prophecies that he fulfilled, that all lined up, that he had to fulfill in himself. Hundreds of prophecies, 613 commands. Jesus said, I fulfilled all of them perfectly. You see, Jesus' perfect obedience set the standard of righteousness to enter a holy God's kingdom. And I'm about to apply it to us here, so thank you for hanging with me because you've got to understand this. Jesus' perfect obedience set the standard of righteousness to enter a holy God's kingdom. What Jesus is pre pre presenting here to these folks, to the crowd, is the kingdom of heaven. What do we know about heaven? Heaven is holy because God is holy. How much sin is in heaven? Goose egg, zero, nothing. There is no sin there. So in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be completely holy, completely righteous or in right standing with a holy God. 
That's what Jesus did when he came is he sets that standard. He does not lower the standard. He does not say, well, I'm gonna introduce a different standard. He says, no, the standard is what God has already laid out and I will meet it fully. That's the standard you have to live by to enter the kingdom of heaven. Are we there? Do you sense a problem? Because I've been trying to explain that's what Jesus is presenting is a huge problem. Huge problem that you and I have and every person who's walked the face of this earth has. You see, entrance into the kingdom of heaven is based upon perfect adherence to God's law. You should be nervous as we read this text. That, and that's okay. It's based on perfect adherence to God's law. Christ sets that standard and he doesn't relax it. Look at what he says in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, all of those ones we've talked about, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most holy people that you guys know around, the Pharisees, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Scary. I can't be more holy than Billy Graham, than Mother Teresa, or any of the holiest people you know, your holy grandmother, or grandpa, I don't know. Whoever you look up to and you go, they're the most righteous person that you know, we all fall short of that standard, yet that is the standard to enter the kingdom of heaven is perfect obedience. Now, even if you started today and you said, today, I will be perfect for the rest of my life, guess what? Can't go back and change the past. So you still have blemishes, still have marks, so do I. This is the problem that Jesus is presenting when he presents this new standard and says that he's not gonna lower it or grade us on the curve. You see, external adherence to the law is insufficient for admission to the kingdom of heaven. External obedience isn't enough. And that's essentially what the Pharisees were doing. They were showing or presenting themselves to everyone as keeping the entire law. But we know that righteousness runs deeper than rules. It, it runs deeper than just doing the right things. Let me give you a, a, an illustration. Um, every once in a while, uh, Jen and I might get into a verbal spat. Or I might offend her in some way. It doesn't happen very often. Um, and there are times, probably more times than I would like to admit, where Jen will come to me and she will say, will you just say you're sorry? And I'm such a brat. I confess, guys, forgive me, God. But when she says, will you just say you're sorry? And I'll say, I'm sorry. And she goes, for, for what? And I said, I said, I'm sorry. That's all you asked me to say. Well, will you say what you're sorry for? what I'm sorry for. 
Now I've done exactly what she asked me to do. Have I not? Do you think that we are rightly related at that time? Not at that time and probably for at least another 24 hours, we are not rightfully related. We're we're in no way. But I've externally obeyed what she wanted me to do. And the same is true with God. We can externally do what he tells us to do, but internally we can be completely wicked and dark and stubborn and prideful, and self-righteous, and arrogant, the same way that I am with her sometimes. And, it's, and we do that towards God. You see, external obedience does not make us rightly related. You see, obedience to God's law has to be both external and internal, but that is humanly impossible. And we know that. We know that externally we might be able to do the right things even 80% of the time. I'll, I'll, give you, I'll, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt there. But internally, we can't. And we are about to be shown a lot of Monday morning examples that Jesus is going to give us in our subsequent sermons coming in the next few weeks where he says, oh, you think you're doing well by obeying externally? Let's talk about the internal. Let's talk about the heart. You see, it is humanly impossible to obey God's standard both externally and internally, which drives us to the whole point of what Jesus is saying right here. The perfect righteousness necessary to enter Jesus' kingdom can only be given by Jesus. You cannot earn it. It can only be given by the only one who could merit it, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who could live up to it, and so it's his to give, and he offers it to us. You cannot merit it. When it comes to the law, we will all fall short. You see, when you think, just think about, now I'm gonna gonna go back to the general laws. I want you to think about laws just in general. When we relate to the law, I'm talking speed limit. Doesn't matter what it is. I'm being very generic here, but this also applies to God's word. When we relate to the law, there's only two ways to relate to it. You can either obey the law or you pay the penalty. That's it. Those are your only two options. You either obey it or you pay for it. You're speeding you get a speeding ticket. I mean, you didn't obey the law. You do drugs, you go to jail. You hurt somebody, you do the time. That's that's just the way that it is. When When we relate to law, you obey the law, you pay the penalty. With God's word, it's no different. You either obey it perfectly or you pay the penalty. Problem is, the penalty is death, eternal separation from God. But the good news is, he already paid the penalty for you. <laughs> that's, that's what is just mind-blowing. That God gives these 613 commands of how it, what it means to rightly relate to him. And he goes, I know there's no way you're going to be able to do it. So I'll pay for it. 
I'll pay for all those ones in your past. I'll pay for all those ones in your future. And I'm not just going to pay just for, just for a few of you that I really like. Who, who, you know, go to church on Sundays. I'm going to pay for those who don't even go to church. I'm going to pay for those who do wicked and evil things. Because I want them to come to know me. You either obey it or you pay for it. Or... There's a third option. Somebody pays it for you. And that's what Jesus did for us. You see, what he's setting up here, what he's driving toward, is that there's no way that we can meet that. There's no way that you and I can live under the law. There's no way we can obey it. There's no way we can bear it. It is a huge weight and burden. So the only other option to living under the law is living under the king of the law. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to live under the king of the law. And here's what that means. I just want to break it down for you very quickly. The first is this. Accept Jesus's righteousness as your own because your efforts will always fall short. And I'm going to get, I'm going to, get to um, if you want to use the word effort, in, in just one moment. But the only way that you can be made right before God is to accept Jesus' righteousness as your own. That, that's it. I'll, I'll give you an illustration because I know that's very abstract. This past summer, uh, we were very blessed as a family. We got to take the boys to Disney. Um, we're very blessed to be back from Disney. Um, but it was a great time, a wonderful time. Um, leading up to uh, our trip, uh, we constant, the boys made us constantly measure their height. Constantly. I mean, it was a daily occurrence because they knew that when we got to Disneyland to get on particular rides, and we had told them this, you know, that you had to be this tall to ride the ride. And so, I mean, weeks were going, okay, Dax, you are, you know, 52 inches. And Hayes, you are 42 inches. And we knew, we knew it every time. And, and it didn't, he didn't grow. Neither of them grew in, in the weeks ahead. So we knew going into Disney exactly how tall they were. And I remember going up to rides and there were particular rides there that you had to be 48 inches to ride. 48 inches and Hayes would stand, stand against there, and he'd stand on his tiptoes, you know, and he's 42 inches, you know, it doesn't matter how high you get up on those little tippy toes that he has, he's, you know, five years old, he's never going to make it to 48. He can try all he wants, and he's never going to make it. He desperately wants to, though. He would love to do it, but there was a stipulation in the height requirement that if someone over 48 inches rode with him, then he could ride the ride. And so guess what I had the privilege of doing? Riding the rides with my son. Because he can't do it by himself. It took somebody to come in who was tall enough to ride the ride. Guys, you must be way too tall to ride this ride. And it doesn't matter how much you stand on your tiptoes, you're never gonna make it. You need somebody to come alongside and say, I'm tall enough. You can ride with me. It's the only way you get there. 
It's the only way, and that's what he offers to you. You have to accept his righteousness, his invitation to ride that ride, because you'll never get in on your own. Second, uphold the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, rather than relaxing its standards. Uh, very quickly, I want to say a, a couple things about this. Um, Jesus, again, he says he did not come to abolish the law. So just because we are now, for those of you who have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, just because now you are in Christ and now we are free in Christ, now we live under the law of Christ, I'll explain those things quickly, that does not mean that you are free to do whatever you want. Jesus abolished the ceremonial laws. Remember, that is how we relate to God because now he has paved a way for us to be made right before a holy God. So those are out. But guess what? The civil laws and the moral laws, in a, in a sense, still apply. And Jesus summed up the law when he said, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love or treat your neighbor as yourself. So those moral and civil laws, are those still apply, but you can only apply those through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we cannot relax the word of God. Our world is relaxing the word of God, and we cannot. We will not. Every iota, every dot will be fulfilled. Okay, we can't, we can't make these, these two testaments, Old Testament and New Testament, incongruent. They're congruent. They're, they're the same. But now Jesus, in the law of Christ, we now obey him. It's not antinomianism and it's not anarchy. It's following him in the power of the spirit to keep in step with the spirit and walk in his ways. And that's what we learn from the New Testament. And obviously this is a turn, but we have to, as individuals, and we will as a church, uphold the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, worship Jesus who fulfilled the law so we didn't have to fight against it. I hope every day we should, I hope every day we all wake up knowing that we'll never be tall enough. Knowing that the standard to get into heaven, you have to be as tall as the moon. And Jesus came along and he took us and said, ride this ride with me. And we worship him for it. Not only because of the great ride that we have with him, but for the death that he saved us from. Not being held under this burden and condemnation of 613 commands that we couldn't remember, much less uphold. All of those things mean that Jesus fought the law and he won. See, I've been waiting this whole sermon to say it. I fought the law. <laughs> and the law won. You, I love you guys. You're great. Thank you for humoring me. We worship someone who fought the law, and he won. God, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. It's what we build our lives on. Lord, we, there is no way that we can have our own righteousness that merits any credit before you. And so we have to 
totally trust in you, and that's a great thing to do. One who's gone before us, one who's accomplished and fulfilled the law, one who walks before us and gives us the Holy Spirit so that we may each day walk victoriously in you. Lord, I pray that we would do that by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk according to your word and bring you glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.